Welcome to the first episode of our new podcast, Tales from No Sleep. I'm your host, Luke Baker. In this podcast, we will be reading short stories from the subreddit No Sleep. In our first story, we find a man up late doing his laundry and finding that something's just not right with the elevator in Don't Take the 3 a.m. Elevator by Andaris, narrated by myself. I was too busy during the day to do the laundry. That's what I told myself. But mainly, I wanted some time to myself out of the week to just be alone and unwind with my thoughts. The laundry room in the basement was always close to empty for most part of my fellow college goers in the early hours of the morning. So I always found myself there, squatting next to the spin cycle of my thoughts in the washer. Most of the time, I just pondered randomly and let my mind do its own white noise thing for a while. I must have been there on a Friday night, Saturday morning, and it was completely empty. It was early in the morning, two, maybe three. My laundry finished the dryer cycle and I pulled my clothes out ready to collapse in bed in my apartment on the 15th floor of the building. I made my way over to the only elevator that came down into the basement in the center section. Waiting for the doors to open, I read the notice board and the posters that advise what to do for the next month. Looking at the clock behind me, I noticed it was really late. Exactly 3 a.m., I noticed, amused. I really shouldn't do this to my sleep cycle. I almost didn't hear the elevator doors open behind me. And if it wasn't for the voice, I would have stepped in. That moment of hesitation, probably in retrospect, had saved me from an unknown fate. You know how elevators sometimes have a voice in the speakers to announce the floor and the direction it was heading? For example, if it were on the third floor on its way down, it would sound something like, Third floor, going down. This voice came out almost comically, many octaves lower, and much slower than usual. Basement going down. I felt a wave of uneasiness wash over me. There was never, for as long as I've lived in the building, floors lower than the basement. I had never seen a button lower than B for basement in the elevator. I felt at that moment an extreme fear root my feet into place as I stood in front of the parted doors. The elevator doors usually shut after a few seconds, but this time they remained open for almost a complete minute, as if it were waiting for me to get in. When they finally closed, I had the impression it had given up for the time being. While not wanting to take this strange elevator, I also was really against the idea of climbing 15 flights of stairs with my laundry in tow at this hour. I decided to wait for the elevator to come back. It might have been a faulty speaker, I rationalized. It was an old building. I suspected that maintenance hadn't caught on yet because nobody had noticed it at this hour. Surprised, I heard the sound of the elevator continuing down below the floor of the basement for an unknown number of floors. 
before I heard the faint but unmistakable ding that signified the opening of the doors. So there were floors beneath the basement? How deep did the building go? I remembered how deep the dinging sound came from underground in the muffled shuffle of what sounded like multiple people into the elevator, and suddenly felt like it wasn't the best idea to stay here waiting for the doors to open. I looked at the highlighted up button. It hadn't been my brightest idea to push it, but I only wanted to go upstairs faster. But now I was scared of seeing the occupants of the elevator from its trip underground. I had basically guaranteed that the elevator would open in the basement on its way up. As soon as I came to that conclusion, I heard the elevator murmur on its way up, and I sprinted for the stairs that took me into the lobby. Halfway up the stairs, I heard the ding of the doors opening on the basement floor, but I didn't dare look back. I reached the main lobby and breathed relief. It was silent, but it was calm and well lit and suddenly I felt a bit silly for overreacting. I looked down at the dark stairwell to the basement, aware that I had never heard the elevator doors closed. Had it always been dark in the basement? In our second tale, we have a 911 operator getting a call from a man that reports a strange figure outside his house. In I'm a 911 operator, and I just had the most terrifying call by Higgs Thunder, narrated by myself and Renee Cooper. Nine one one, what's your emergency? Hi, um, this is going to sound kind of strange, but there's a man stumbling around in circles in my front yard. Could you repeat that, sir? He looks sick or lost or drunk or something. I woke up to get a glass of water and heard snow crunching underneath my front window, so I peeked out. I'm looking at him now. He's about ten yards away from my window. Something's not right. Okay, uh, what's your address, sir? 1617 Quarry Lane in Pinella Pass. Alright, I'm going to send a squad car your way. But that's quite a ways out. Are you alone in your house, sir? Yes, I'm alone. Can you confirm that all of your doors and windows are locked? Please stay on the phone with me. I know that my front is definitely locked, but I'll check the back door again real quick. I appreciate your help, by the way. I know this is kind of strange, but I really hope that... Sir? Are you still there? He's he's still in the yard, but what the f... He's standing upside down. Sir? Sir, stay on with me. W- what's happening? He's he's staring right at me, but he's, he's standing on his hands now. He's perfectly still, staring straight at me. He's doing a handstand, and he's smiling at me, not moving. He's... he's doing a handstand, sir? I I don't... I don't... I don't know. Yeah. He's facing me and standing on his hands. And he's got this huge smile. And he's perfectly still. What the... 
please. Please, someone get, get someone out here right now. Sir, I need you to remain calm. I've put out the call and an officer is on the way. His teeth are so huge. What? What? Please help me. Sir, I want you to try and keep an eye on him, but make sure your back door is locked again. We need to make sure all possible access points are secured. Can you talk me through and confirm that your back door is locked? Okay. I'm walking backwards now and keeping him in my sight. My hand is on the back doorknob now. It's locked. I need to check the deadbolt, so I'm going to take my eyes off him for a split second. All right, sir. Help is on the way. Just stay on the phone with me. Everything's going to be all right. Sir? Sir, are you still there? He's... His face... It's up against the glass. Sir, I need you to speak up. What is happening? I looked away for a split second, and now his face... It's pressed up against my front window. His teeth are huge, and he's still smiling. There's no color in his eyes. Jesus, please help me. Why doesn't it just move? Sir, I, I need you to go to the nearest room and lock yourself inside of it. Do you have a basement or a bedroom that you can lock yourself in? He won't stop staring. He's gonna hurt me. Sir, I need you to listen to me. Lock yourself somewhere safe until the officer arrives at your house. Can you hear me? I... Yes. Yes. I'm going to lock myself in my room. And you're positive that you're alone in your house, correct? Yes, I'm alone in the house. Wait a moment. He's moving. He's shaking his head. He's telling me no. He can hear us. He's telling me I'm not alone. Sir. Sir, are you are you still there? I heard a loud noise. Is everything all right? Sir? In our final story, we hear from a sheltered girl who has recently discovered Tinder and asked for dating advice with overprotective parents. And I finally took the plunge and signed up for Tinder by Pancast and narrated by Marissa Bank. My name's Abigail. I got on Tinder about a week after I turned 18, so about a month ago. I've always been more on the quiet side. No parties or wild nights for me, unless you count that time I found on the stairs at 2 in the morning on my way to get a glass of water. So back in June, I officially entered adulthood without having done so much as hold a guy's hand. Already, there are tons of stereotypes about homeschooled kids. We're all socially awkward freaks or weirdly religious, according to Mean Girls. I've watched clips of it on YouTube. I'm tired of fulfilling even one of the stereotypes, so I figured it was time for me to enter the dating scene. Like I said in the title, I have overprotective parents. They were raised on a diet of scripture and spirituals, and even though we live in Virginia now, not exactly Bible Belt territory, they've raised me like I'm some kind of endangered species. I wasn't allowed to have a phone until I was 16, and even now I can only use it during the approved times which, according to my mother, are Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. I always figure that was normal, but apparently most people have their phone on them 24-7. Then again, a lot of things that seem normal online don't extend to real life. Anyways, 
It goes without saying that mom and dad don't know about my being on Tinder. They've always said they want me to have a normal life, but when it comes to socializing, they're like that immovable object the Joker mentioned in The Dark Knight. Practically half of that movie is on YouTube. I guess I have it easy compared to my sister, but it's hard to stop myself from getting restless. I've never been to a masked ball, I've never ridden across the ocean on a massive boat, never seen a boat, much less the ocean. I've never had someone stand outside my window with a boombox over his head. I just want to experience the things the rest of the world seems to experience. That's not unreasonable, is it? I've spent way too long typing this. My hour's almost up. I'll save this text in my notes and keep going tomorrow. Okay, I'm back. My parents think I use my phone to play those educational games they downloaded for me, so they don't watch me too closely. I'm sitting in the living room now while my mom cooks dinner. I could just go to my room, but there's not much point since it doesn't have a door. Let's get back to the whole point of this post, dating advice. You can probably tell that I'm sheltered and more than a little inexperienced. This might sound a little strange, but I've never even left my house. My parents have always told me that they don't want me exposed to the germs out there until I'm ready, which isn't very specific. They told my sister, older than me by two years, the same thing, but she snuck out every Saturday night anyway. She always asked me to come with her, but I figured the consequences of getting caught wouldn't be worth it. I was right. The reason I'm making this post now is because of Tinder. In the months since I downloaded it, I've only swiped right on three guys. The first one was an accident, the second one didn't swipe right on me, and the third one I've been chatting with for the last two weeks. He's 18 too, and his parents are pretty strict as well, but not as strict as mine since he's allowed to cut his hair and hang out with other people. He lives within 10 miles of me, though he's not really sure where I live. Not surprising, since we're in the middle of the woods and I don't have a real address. He's incredibly nice and funny, and I think he looks exactly like a younger version of the guy from The Notebook, another movie I saw parts of on YouTube. The only problem is, he keeps asking me to meet up. I want to meet with him too, obviously, but I can't really imagine sneaking out. That's the kind of thing my sister did, and our parents caught her just a week after she turned 19. They were waiting beneath the window when she dropped out one Saturday night. I was in my room, buried under the covers, and I could still hear her yelling. She shouted my name a few times, but I couldn't tell if it was out of anger or out of something else. My parents showed her to me on the day I turned 18, as a reminder to always stay their good little girl. They said they weren't really worried about me, though. They knew how close I was to my sister, which is why they were so proud that I had told them about her sneaking out. But they wanted to remind me anyways, just in case becoming an adult had given me any ideas. I'm not going to lie, when I first got on Tinder, I thought it would be a little like Romeo and Juliet. I would climb out the window and have a romantic rendezvous somewhere in town, then slide back into bed before dawn. Now that it's actually happening, I'm too nervous to go through with it. Has anyone else ever been in this position? Have you ever wanted something so badly, but once it's within arm's reach, you can't bring yourself to actually grab it? I took way too long typing this out. My hour's up again, so I'll have to finish it up next week on Tuesday. I don't even know why I'm putting so much time into this. I guess it's just a nice thought that I'm writing something others will actually see, that I'll be communicating with people outside of this house. It's Tuesday. A couple of important things have happened over the last four days. The first thing is that Toby, the guy I've been chatting with on Tinder, has told me that he'll be at a place called Pizza Hut at 1.30 p.m. this Wednesday, so tomorrow, and that he really hopes I can meet him there. I almost told him no. I actually typed out the word and came so close to sending it, 
but then I decided to sleep on the decision. He told me this just before my time was up on Thursday, so I had plenty of time to think it over. My parents were both busy on Saturday, dad working in the backyard, mom quarantined in the laundry room, so I did something I swear I've never even thought of doing before. I snuck down to the basement and I talked to my sister. The door wasn't locked, I almost expected it to be, though there wouldn't be much point to that, considering how little movement the chains allow her. I've never had a problem with the dark. Even that Ryan Reynolds movie, Barry, didn't scare me. So I didn't mind that the only light down there came from the single light bulb dangling from the ceiling, one that I couldn't even turn on until I was halfway down the stairs. That's as far as my parents had ever taken me on my birthday, just halfway down, not a step farther. The basement is small enough, it's barely a five by five square, that I could see the entire thing in the glow of that bulb. The dusty cement floor, the damp brick walls, creaking wooden ceiling, I've never understood how rats can live down there. I asked my dad that once, and he grumbled that my sister was probably feeding them. I assumed she did it out of kindness, then later realized it might have been more practical. The more rats that were there, the more she could eat. I know you're probably bored with all these details, so I'll stop there. The important thing for you to know is that my sister made up my mind. I'm sneaking out to meet with Toby. She told me what the city is like, based on her memories from when she would spend every Saturday night there. She said she wanted me to have that, to have exactly what she'd had. I reminded her that she had been caught. She hadn't really replied to that. She gave me a strange, thin smile and said that she was getting tired and could I please remind mom to bring her dinner tonight. The only thing for me to do now is to wait. I'll post this, hopefully get some good advice. What do people even talk about on dates? The movies never show that. And then post an update tomorrow evening. Honestly, I don't even care if Toby and I talk about the pattern of the wallpaper for two straight hours. I'll just be glad to have something interesting in my life for once. My meetup with Toby was set for 1.30, but I didn't want to run off without at least checking to see what responses my post had gotten. While my dad read in his study and my mom did her usual don't bother me during laundry time routine, I snuck into my parents' bedroom and retrieved my phone from the bedside table. When I was younger, they would hide it from me, probably somewhere in the wardrobe, but at this point they trusted me enough to leave it out in the open. Even if one of them had walked in at that very moment, I could have played it off as though I were so excited about finishing my latest round of quiz up. I just couldn't wait for 6pm. My parents loved that about me. My mom called it my thirst for knowledge. I remember pouring through the books and periodicals in my dad's study, absorbing everything I possibly could and regurgitating it over the dinner table that same night. Did you know that Alexander the Great turned an island into a peninsula? Did you know that the dot-com bubble climaxed in 2000? Did you know that the oldest person in the world was 122 years old? I read that last one just two weeks ago, actually. It's funny how much things have changed since then. It's funny how much things have changed in just the past two days. Of all the comments you guys left, the most common ones had to do with my sister. Everyone seemed convinced that she was going to tell my parents about my plans and that if I tried sneaking out, they would be waiting for me, just like they had been waiting for her. While I know the old quote about only fools asking for advice and refusing to take it, so I took it. I stayed home on Wednesday just going about my normal routine of reading and sleeping and brushing my hair. I think my split ends are beginning to develop split ends. 1.30 came and went, and I imagine Toby did as well. Around 5 o'clock, my dad came into my room, phone in hand. He joined me on the bed and set the phone down between us, saying that I had earned an extra hour that day. He wrapped his arm around my shoulders to give me a friendly squeeze. You were always our good little girl, you know. Always. 
He was looking at the mirror on the wall above my desk, his eyes on the small crack in the corner that commemorated the time my sister had suggested a book-throwing contest. We raised you the same way we raised your sister, and look at how she turned out, a hedonistic, vindictive liar. He spit the last few words out, then forced a smile onto his face as he shrugged. Some people are born bad. It all comes down to who the devil chooses. You have no idea how lucky you are that he didn't choose you. He gave me a light kiss on the forehead and stood to go. I didn't plan on replying, but I looked down at my phone, remembered everything you all had said about how disturbing my life apparently was, and blurted out, are we normal? My dad turned around slowly. He asked me what I meant by that. His expression had been so warm just a minute ago, but now there was a strange coldness to it, as though he had just thrown up a wall. I picked up my phone, already regretting having asked, and told him that I hadn't meant anything by it, and not to worry, and never mind. The wall crumbled, giving way to a look of blazing fury that I had never seen before. He jumped forward and snatched the phone from my hand, demanding to know who had said that we were anything other than normal. His hands were shaking. He shouted my mom's name, already navigating the phone's interface, something he had only done once before to download the educational apps the first day he purchased it, with his trembling white fingers. He shouted for her again, and the sound of his voice breaking echoed in my ears. I could have snatched the phone back from him if I had actually tried. I could have made some sort of excuse or started crying in hopes of gaining his sympathy. But at that moment, strangely enough, all I could do was sit on my bed and think dumbly, I won't live to be 122 years old. My hand is cramping and the gray-suited man, the nice one, is back, probably to ask me yet again if there's anything I need, anything at all. I'll come back to this later. He said he would bring me a Happy Meal, which sounds sinister to be honest, as though he plans on forcing happiness down my throat until I smile for the cameras. Hopefully he won't be back for a while, but better him than the mean one, I guess. The mean one talks about me as though I'm not there, and the last time he stopped by, I heard him mutter on the way out something about cutting my hair. I stayed in my room while my parents argued. Every other word seemed to be either tender or normal, with a few are good little girls thrown in for emphasis. My mom started crying after 10 minutes of it, and I heard her whimper. But what did she say? My dad's reply in a gruff, slightly abashed tone. I didn't ask her. The house was quiet after that, quiet until the sun went down. I lay on my bed on top of the covers, waiting for the telltale creak of footsteps down the hall. They came shortly before midnight, but stopped before I could sit up to greet them. She's asleep, I heard my mom say. We can talk to her in the morning. Three heavy footsteps followed this declaration, footsteps that seemed to be aimed for my bed. They came to a sudden stop when my mom hissed, Please, don't wake her. She'll be scared. More than she already is. We can't have her thinking there's anything more to this. We need to treat it like it's nothing. It's not nothing. She doesn't know that. She's naive. You saw the conversation she was having with that boy. It looks like all she wanted was a normal experience. Normal girls don't run off to meet with boys. My dad's voice had all the ironness of a judge's when passing a sentence. Whores run off to meet with boys. What she planned on doing was not normal. What she planned on doing isn't what she said, my mom insisted. We both watched her all day. She didn't even glance out the window. She resisted temptation like Christ in the desert. If anything, this proves her purity. A heavy silence ensued. I realized that I had been holding my breath since my dad's condemnation and let it out slowly, afraid to even move my stomach. I pretended I was a corpse at a wake. I pretended I was a mummy in a sarcophagus. I pretended I was a murder victim resting comfortably within a chalk outline. 
When my dad spoke at last, it was in a low growl. The other one. I couldn't hear his fists clenching, but saw them in my mind's eye. That's enough. We've had enough. I know, my mom whispered. We've been kind to her these past two years. We've fed her more than she deserved. We've shown her our love after she spat on us. We have treated her like a human being instead of the ghoul that she is. And she thought she could win us back by trying to drag her sister, her own flesh and blood, down to her level, as though the Lord would give Lucifer his blessing again, as though Cain were an honorable man for betraying his brother. I know. Family is family. I know. He and my mom reverted back to silence, this time for so long that I nearly moved, assuming that they had somehow slipped away. Then, I'll take care of it. My dad in a voice that could bring down snow in the summer. His heavy footsteps returned. They retreated away from my bed and were interrupted once again by my mom's voice. No, she said, more calm than I had ever heard her. I will. The nice gray suited man is back, a bag in his hand. I can smell its contents and my stomach grumbles. He's gone to get me a knife after I broke the plastic one in half. When I tried smearing the ketchup of the burger, nothing too revolutionary about this meal, I've had burgers and fries almost every week of my whole life. I told him I didn't need another knife, but he insisted. I can hear him on the other side of the door right now, murmuring to someone, one of the doctors I think with the shoulder length blonde hair, about the poor girl who had never had McDonald's before. I don't want to keep typing. My hand aches, even more than the one in the cast. My head is beginning to pound, but they need me to write down what happened. Normally they say things like this are handwritten on special forms. They allowed me the computer only because my right hand is incapacitated and because I refuse to do a dictation. I don't want to talk about what happened. Putting it into words is already hard enough without someone else listening. I watched my dad in the morning after the argument, peering at him from my vantage point behind the bedroom window. He was in the garden digging in between the tomatoes and the roses. The hole was too big for a new flower or fruit, yet too deep for a tree or a bush. He dug throughout the morning, not pausing even when the blisters burst and drenched his fingers in blood. Once he had a sizable space cleared, he tossed the shovel on the side and returned to the house. He emerged a few minutes later, dragging behind himself a garbage bag big and black, which he emptied into the hole. His back was to me, bent over his task, obscuring the bag's contents from my view. The hole was too deep for me to see the bottom. He filled it quickly, his movements mechanical. When I walked into the kitchen, my mom was at the sink. She glanced up at me, smiling gently, and immediately launched into a delicate apology for what had happened the previous day. She explained that my dad was a very sensitive man and that he had only been looking out for my safety and that both she and he understand that I hadn't meant any harm by my actions. They weren't angry with me, she promised. On the contrary, they were proud, so proud of their good little girl, and they loved me so very much, and they didn't want me to worry about this little event in the least bit. I could barely hear her. Even now, thinking as hard as I can, I remember only bits and pieces of what she said, just the general gist of it. I was watching her hands as they wiped a cleaver clean, washing the blood from its blade and down the drain. A few of you were horrified by the image of my sister chained in that basement. Do you know something even more terrifying than that? Do you know what's worse than opening the basement door, turning on the bulb, and finding a half-starved girl slumped against the wall? Opening the basement door, turning on the bulb, and finding nothing. Nothing but a dark puddle in the middle of the floor, obscured almost completely by the dozens of rats attempting to lap it up. I heard my mom yelling for me to stop as I ran out of the house. 
Somewhere in the back of my mind, it registered that this was my first time being outside. The first time the grass could tickle my bare feet and the birds could scatter out of my way as I ran towards them. I didn't pause to dwell on this. I was fixated on my dad, who had just straightened up from the half-filled hole. I saw the surprise on his face as I swung my fist in the direction of his cheek. It hurt. A lot. I screamed and curled over, my knees buckling as my knuckles erupted in a pain that splintered across my entire hand, the way a crack appears on a mirror. I fell into the loose dirt, my face pressed into the earth, my howl muffled. My dad did nothing, said nothing, just stepped away from me cautiously as though I were a rabid animal. I heard the door slam as my mom left the house, calling my name. Leaving my right hand balled against my stomach, I plunged the left one into the dirt hardly processing what I was doing. I scooped out handful after handful, the eyes of my parents beating on my back until I felt something brush against my skin, something clammy and stiff. I wrapped my fingers around it and pulled, releasing it once I had brought it to the surface. A human hand flopped onto the ground. It stumped the deep scarlet of dried blood. The man is back. He sets the knife on the table, a real knife this time, and smiles at me. He tells me how they appreciate my help. He says if my account is good enough, I might not be called in to testify once the trial eventually starts, probably months from now. His phone vibrates before I can respond, and he leaves the room with it pressed to his ear. I don't know how much more I should bother saying. Everyone knows what happened next, more or less. They know that I was found wandering through woods by a hunter who claims to have at first mistaken me for some sort of bear. They know that he carried me back to his pickup truck and started driving towards the hospital. They know that he swerved in shock when I numbly uncrossed my arms, reached out, and deposited the severed hand onto his dashboard. He crashed into a pole, and an ambulance drove us the rest of the way. The police found my parents at home, going about their lives as though nothing had happened. My mom was doing laundry, and my dad was thumbing through a novel. Even when the officers opened the basement door, even when they went into the backyard and saw raccoons going through the freshly dug grave, my parents remained unfazed. The most they protested was at riding in the police car instead of taking the environmentally friendly action and walking. I don't know where they are now, in a cell somewhere, though probably not in chains. The last time I saw them was the day I left, their blank faces watching me backing away from them and into the woods, not even bothering to protest. It was as though they were afraid of me, had given up on me, were in shock at me. I wonder how much they know about my current situation. I heard it being discussed on the local news as I left the hospital. Feral child found frantic after fleeing freak parents, the announcer boomed. I'm a feral child because of my hair, the man in the gray suit, the mean one explained. Even though I'm neither feral nor a child, I'll have to cut it, he said. The knife that the nice man brought is sitting untouched, glinting in the sunlight. The window is bigger than any of the windows at my house, even though this is just a police station. I never realized how small my house actually was. I never realized how small my world actually was, or how quiet it was. I never realized that movies lie about happy endings. My hand hurts. My head hurts, too. Not in a way I can really explain. I know I should eat, should pick up the knife, and spread the ketchup across my burger. But the effort seems monumental. I won't live to be 122 years old. I don't want to. I'm going to post this story for all of you. I'm going to proofread it and make sure it covers all the details the policemen ask for. I'm going to pick up the knife. On the other side of the door, I can hear the nice man talking. He's saying that he still can't believe it, that something like this could happen, and in such a nice small town, too. He's wondering how many other basements there are with chains on the wall. He's wondering how many people there are like me.
Thank you for joining us. Tune in next time for more short stories from No Sleep. Or something that you just run with, like just like a could, light line. Could you line give a life example from your life? I, I kind of have one. Oh, oh, Morgan's ready to go. Okay. <laughs>